to show and tell. My name is Sarah Marie and I am an ambassador for the School of English and Drama as well as your host for tonight. This is my first time putting on a show for show and tell and I'm really excited because this evening's topic is one that sits near and dear to my heart and it is intersectionality. Queen Mary markets itself as an institution that is proud to educate a diverse student population but I wanted to do more than just act as a token who complies with being part of the university's brand. I decided to work with Asana to curate Show and Tell because I believe that you can address structural inequalities from within the institution and I wanted Show and Tell to do exactly that. Today's Show and Tell endeavours, for the most part, to argue a case for intersectionality. It will feature grassroots speakers and students who are writing about activism and art and or are creating inclusive spaces for themselves in exclusive fields. The show and tell considers the intricate connections, particularly between class, gender and race. It presents a range of speakers with individualistic as opposed to perpetuating the notion that the experiences of marginalised groups are monolithic. These talks aim to inspire you and could help you with your very own consideration of what space you want to create for yourself in the world. And as we move on to the inspiring mini-talks, it's time now to introduce our first speaker, David Wilson. Hi, my name's David Wilson, and when I'm talking to friends or trying to impress people, I say that I direct music videos. But when I'm talking to my accountant, I say that I direct commercials, because one of them pays very well, and the other one doesn't, but at least it makes you look cool. So um, that's what I do, and my question that I was posed to in order to make this speech was, yes, I want to do this. And uh, so, yes, I want to do this. What made me want to do what I do with my life as a career and vocation? And in order to kind of trace that back, I'm going to take you back quite a few years to a teenage version of myself. Um, as a gay man who wasn't out, I didn't come out until I was 19, um, I found solace in making art. I would draw, I would paint, and I would get validation from doing that. I would do a drawing and I would show it to my parents or I'd show it to my friends and they would go, that's great. And I would take that as, I'm good. And I could see that as this external validation of even though there was something inside of me that I saw society, is, society was telling me was wrong, I could find this other side that would give me validation that at least this was right and people liked me for this. It also meant that I could listen to the radio a lot and listen to my CDs and listen to music because I couldn't do that with doing my geography homework or doing my maths or my science, but I could when I made paintings and made drawings. So it was this magic combination of being able to express my feelings, get external validation, and get the escapism of listening to music. So this progressed. I would draw and paint, and this would lead me to go to art college. I studied illustration at the University of Brighton. So uh, when I was at the university, my tutor, it was on a very conceptual course, uh, encouraged me to explore animation and filmmaking. I did, and the tutors liked what I was doing with 
motion rather than my still work, my drawn work. And so, again, it's that external validation of going, oh, this is great, you should continue doing this. And it meant that I could work not just by listening to music, but with music. It was making my, my drawings move with the music. And that was intoxicating, it was beautiful. So that led me to make music videos. I would just do so by working with my friend's music. And then my friends managed to get signed or get management. And then I'd get commissioned to make more music videos. And then by the age of 23, I found myself at a production company that did both animation and live action. And it was all through me listening to music and wanting to kind of escape from the world and this external validation. Then I just ran with it. It was like winning the lottery. I had this amazing production company behind me and because they were behind me, bigger tracks started to come in, bigger artists, and it just felt like I was a charlatan. I, was, I shouldn't be there, but if I worked hard enough, I could run with it and yes i wanted to do that if someone's giving you a golden ticket to say you can't you're not just being validated by your friends and your family for the work that you're doing but by the rock stars and pop stars that you admire so much that's amazing and you want to build towards that and everything step by step was going towards yes i want to do that yes i want to do that i wanted to aim bigger and be more ambitious it meant that i moved to los angeles it meant that by the age of 27 i was doing everything that i set out to do i kind of reached as far as i wanted to reach i wanted to be the best music video, video director i could possibly be and i was working with my favorite artists i was working with arcade fire and tame impala and the arctic monkeys and i got no nominated for a grammy and it was all amazing and then it plateaued it was this thing of okay i've reached this point of i i feel like I've stretched this medium to as far as it can possibly go. And now it was almost like I was repeating myself. I couldn't get a bigger band. I couldn't get a bigger budget. And yet I still needed to find in myself the, yes, I want to do this. And when it's coming from a space that isn't within you, when it's coming from an external validation, it involves some soul searching. Um, and so I took a step back and I do continue to do music videos. I do music videos and as I said earlier, I do commercials because they pay the bills, but they're also a different tool set. Uh, and I make my own short films. I make my own films that represent my experience of life. And I realized when I took a step back, it wasn't just the external validation. The escapism of listening to music was beautiful, but it was also the processing of being human that uh, enticed me to make art in the first place. It was only that the external validation kind of came quickly after that. So for me, in order to wake up in the morning and go, yes, I want to do that, there are certain things that I need to kind of safeguard and the main one that I safeguard is willpower. That's like my baby. So in order to protect my willpower, which is uh, like finite resource, if you 
are sat at your desk and you're working away and your willpower to do so drops to zero. It's not as if you can have a chocolate bar and it goes up. It's gone. And you need to, it, you, you need to put that in fertile soil. You need to be with your family, your friends. You need to go out and walk in nature, listen to music, be inspired, go and see the films that inspire you. Think about the other artists that inspire you. Draw that all in. And then that's the kind of self-generating, that's the hardest part. That's the kind of fire that's stoked inside of you. And you have your like, yes, I want to do this, but what is it that I want to do? And what I have found myself doing is now at the ripe old age of 34, now I've achieved that kind of top level of the music video and the what next thing. It's a cycle. I do three things. I direct short films, which is my experience of my life and um, kind of funneling that through art. So that is like very pure. No one else kind of touches that. It's either, it's actually the last two films that I did were self-funded through the commercial work that I was doing, just so I could really protect it. And then uh, I do music videos, because I still love to be able to say that I do that for a living. I still love to be able to hang out with the musicians that I'm, I admire and collaborate. And then I do commercials, because they're also really fun. Like, uh, you get to play with really big budgets, and you get to fly around the world and play with helicopters and uh, a cast of 200. Um, but it's a different skill set. Each one of them is. They're a different level of collaboration. It's collaborating with yourself, collaborating with an artist you admire, or collaborating with an agency that want you to make a funny film because you made a funny music video, but they don't know how to make a film, but they wrote a script. And maybe you can help them make this script better, but at the end of the day, you also need to make that chocolate biscuit look really good for the client that's paying the agency, that's paying you to sell their chocolate biscuits. It's all a different process. And to me, now, my yes, I want to do this all comes from keeping it fresh. Even if at some points it feels like maybe I'm repeating myself a little bit, there's always something. There's always something different and a different angle to look at the work I'm doing, regardless of what medium. To make it fresh, to look at it a different, uh, fr from a different angle and to, to go for it, um, to kind of keep pursuing that bigger ambition. And uh, even, even though it's not there in the same way that it was in my 20s, uh, I hope that answers the question of, yes, I want to do this. Thank you, David, for your wonderful talk. Very meaningful, very deep, very artistic. So, on to our next speaker. And that is going to be our fellow QM student and personal trainer, Zahin Mia. Perfect. Hi, guys. How are you all? Good? Yeah? So, quick question. Does anyone have a gym membership here? Put your hand up. Okay. Now, do you guys actually use your gym membership? 
put your hand up. Okay, cool. So some of you guys end up putting your hands down, but that's okay. You can still keep active. So um, as you know that I'm a personal trainer, um, but this isn't just what I do. I didn't study it here. I study biochemistry here, actually. And um, studying biochemistry is actually the study of living things, but looking at it with a chemical perspective. So um, for starters, I look at um, cell structure and I'll look at um, the, the cell structure and function and how it functions chemically. But we also look at disease. Um, so I look at disease and how disease comes about, um, how we get it genetically, and how we can cure and treat it. With biochemistry, one of my modules is pharmaceutical chemistry. So we talk about the causes of disease, but we also talk about the treatment of disease um, and what drug targets we can use to um, drugs we can use to treat those diseases. And so now in my biochemistry course, I talk about cause and treatment, but with personal training, I talk about prevention, preventing diseases. Now we can prevent a lot of diseases through fitness and health and exercise. So a lot of diseases can be prevented, such as CHD, so coronary heart disease, obesity, depression. So I became a fitness instructor and personal trainer. I became a fitness instructor and personal trainer um, because I want to talk about um, spreading awareness about preventing disease. I'm just all about trying to get everyone better and fitter and about public health. And that actually started from when I was really young. I was 15 and I was diagnosed with um, psoriatic arthritis. Now you're thinking arthritis is probably an old woman's disease, but it's not. It can happen to anyone and it's painful. It really is painful. And when I studied biochemistry, I understood how it comes about, but it, the symptoms can actually be easily managed through health and fitness. And so, so can so many other diseases. And that's why um, I try to advocate health and fitness through my Instagram and my social media, um, but also in everything that I do. Once I became a fitness instructor and personal trainer, I noticed that um, there was a minority of people that weren't being um, presented, and that's Muslim women. There's not enough Muslim women in um, fitness and in uh, advocating health. Um, and I noticed that, and I feel that a lot of women do feel self-conscious when they go to the gym. Um, maybe they feel a bit more self-conscious when they go into the weights area. They, they, they don't want to be intimidated. And a lot of people, they fear that, you know, they might fall off the treadmill or something. I've had that feeling and it's horrible. And you shouldn't feel like that because at the end of the day, you're going to work out and you're trying to better yourself physically and mentally. So what I tried to do in terms of trying to get more women into fitness, I'm also trying to get more Muslim women into fitness. Um, and Muslim women have that extra barrier because we're always... Um, trying to consider our modesty. But actually, modesty and fitness isn't, they're not mutually um, exclusive. You can pair both of them together. You can work out at home, or you can um, work out at a gym at a quieter time, or you can just wear modest clothing. So that's what I try to do through my um, Instagram. And I try to do that anyways. I just always talk about fitness and health. Um, a lot of people ask me, how do I manage both um, working as a PT and fitness instructor because it does take up a lot of your time and they do ask me how do I manage my studies and actually um, it's all about prioritizing and disciplining um, your lifestyle so you've got to think about what is your priorities in life so my priorities are in life is currently my priorities are to graduate hopefully fingers crossed guys wish me luck and also to keep on top of my health and because those are my priorities, I won't let anything else get in the way. So once you start to prioritise, you can discipline yourself to um, 
to, to daily tasks. Okay, since I want to graduate this year, what are my tasks today? I want to write 500 words extra to, towards my dissertation. Or since, you know, I want to work on my health, I need to work out today. So it's all about prioritizing and disciplining yourself to those tasks. Um, now, I'm not going to stand here and pretend like I've got my life all together, because trust me, no one's got their life all together. I think even like once you're past retirement, you're still probably a bit scrambled. But it does make it easier to sort of manage having priorities and managing your life. So one thing I also want to share with you guys before I finish this talk is wherever you're doing, whatever stage you are in life, because I can see there's people from different demographics, different ages, whatever you're doing, whether you're starting at uni, starting your career at the top of your field or you're unemployed, whatever you're doing, but to be kind to yourself. To be kind to yourself because it matters for your, for your mental health and your physical health. Try not to hate yourself, try not to compare yourself, but rather listen to your body and nourish yourself. I might actually consider, rather than just running for the bus every morning or the train, to actually run with less of a purpose and more just for recreational reasons. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so we will now be hearing from Samea Kasim, who is the writer of The Museum Will Not Be Decolonized. A really, really good piece, if I do say so myself. and thank you for inviting me. Um, thank you because it's given me an opportunity to reflect because I was a student here like eight years ago, I think. Oh, just math. So, uh, my name is Samaya, I'm a freelance writer. Um, I write fiction essays and I'm best known as a, like a troublemaker in the museum and arts um, sector. Uh, so, just to provide a summary of the last uh, three or four years, um, I uh, curated an exhibition called The Past Is Now in Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. And I wrote the essay that Sarah Maria um, mentioned called um, The Museum Will Not Be Decolonized, which went viral. And I've also written an essay uh, calling out the director of the V&A um, for Just Chatting Rubbish, which was widely read. Um, and I collaborate on various DIY projects and organize a decolonial literature festival and just like a bunch of stuff. And right now I'm working on a project with the University of Arts London. But to be honest, most of the day I'm like writing fiction. That's basically all I do. Um, so none of this was really part of like the, my plan. Um, I did my undergrad here, I did my master's here in English literature, and um, I just wanted to be an academic. Um, I wanted to lock myself in the library and like read forever, and I thought of like university as this like escape and a sanctuary um, from like a cruel corporate world, basically. Um, and to be fair, like Queen Mary is like it kind of a sanctuary in a way. Um, it was ahead of its time in terms of its, in terms of its curriculum. Um, and this is basically where I was introduced to some key thinkers, especially anti-racist anti thinkers that I still use today. And one of my lecturers introduced me to a scholar called Talal Assad, which basically changed my life. Um, so yeah, but the thing is, this is also one of the first places I experienced whiteness. Um, I, like I, you know, I went to a very like multicultural, like basically there's no white people in my secondary school. Um, and when I came here to study English literature, even though we're in the, the part of East London, it's like basically everyone was white. Um, and that was hard because um, I'm not. And also people, <laughs> yeah, I know, right, shocker. Um, but like, I'm, but I'm also Muslim and I feel that there's a certain perception that Muslims are irrational and primitive and all these other kinds of um, like stereotypes. 
Um, so yeah, basically, um, the art world is racist and academia is racist and the university is racist. And it's racist even as they, you know, invite people of color to work for them and program anti-racist activities. It's just, you know, it's like very trauma. Um, so basically, um, after um, going to university, I experienced this period of uncertainty. I started doing research through an institution which I absolutely hated. Um, and the, th the reason I hated it, I can't really go into like huge detail because that would take forever, but basically it's like, if you think about institutions, they will tell you that they want to change and they want you to come in and work for them and that kind of thing. But at the same time, they will tell you that you're too loud and you're too confrontational and they'll tell you that you're too emotional or at the, also at the same time that you're not enough and that you're too, so, you know, you, you can't write well and you're not professional enough and all of that, basically. And they'll try and convince you that you're the problem. Um, so, and you're sort of continuously being rejected and then at the same time being told that you're not being rejected. Like, yeah, it's very gaslighting, it's very traumatising. Um, so yeah, and like, just like, if it wasn't for the support network that I have and like God, basically, I don't know how I would still be today, to be honest. Um, so after that, um, didn't work out. I like, I would say I like spent years basically kind of in silence, I suppose. Like I was very scared. Um, I was like, the things I was scared of was like very like abstract. Like I was scared of hurting people with the truth. I was scared of hurting my family. I was like, I was really scared of my own voice. Um, I think it's like partly because I think everyone sort of feels that way that you're scared, like that you're going to transform the world in such a way you can't really control it, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and it's partly because once you realize you have agency, it's like you have this responsibility to speak out for yourself, but also for your community. And that can just feel overwhelming. But kind of like, I basically kind of realized that responsibility can also be a joyful thing and you have to find joy in the work that you do otherwise you'll burn out so how I did that was basically I started writing fiction every single day um, you know I have this like natural capacity to make people feel really uncomfortable so it's like that combined with my fiction was like a way of like yeah navigating the world and um, so basically, I met up with these people who basically changed my life because they they uh, they were self-described as decolonizers, and decolonizing is basically this global movement where people confront statues, buildings, curriculums, public figures. So you guys might have heard of Why Is My Curriculum White, and also Roads Must Fall, which were both initiatives at Oxford University, but it sort of started in South Africa, and. At Queen Mary, there used to be, when, when I was studying here, there used to be a plaque um, honouring King Leopold II, who was responsible for the death of 10 million Congolese. Um, that was removed, I think, in 2016 by the Pan-African Society, so yeah. So I sort of found this, like, a community of people who um, basically kind of accepted me. And there was this... They kind of taught me that you don't really need institutional backing and you don't need much funding and all you really need is just to care and um I, yeah so i so i started working with them and basically what happened yeah so yeah basically um i did this exhibition called the passes now 
and it was just really bad vibes. Um, it was just, it was just like they were very exploitative. It was very, yeah, it was just yikes. And um, so I kind of began thinking about what I could do because um, there are very few people in the art world that look like me. And I, you know, I write what I enjoy doing and I have this sensitivity towards power structures and I talk posh. So it's like, you know, I wanted to create a space for people of colour to connect and to feel recognised and to validate the bad vibes that they felt um, being in museums. Because I think when you put words to the feelings that people have, it sort of, it's like very powerful. And it's a way of sort of creating a sense of solidarity and community building as well helps us recognise we're not alone and it really irritates powerful gatekeepers which is like fun now. Um, so I wrote the museum will not be decolonised um, and that went viral and I became part of a community of voices which hold institutions to account, demanding for stone objects to be returned, demanding reparations for former colonies, demanding that black people, indigenous people and people of colour the world over be treated as human beings. And like that kind of changed my life because now like institutions like respect me and stuff like that and invite me to do stuff but it's like as grateful as I am for all the opportunities like I never want to forget how it felt to write that essay because it put a huge strain on me um, I was taking a huge risk I wasn't affiliated to an institution I wasn't paid or commissioned to write that essay and it's really lonely to speak out um, it's really lonely to complain it's really lonely to sort of take that responsibility onto yourself and it's really important to remember that some of us can stay silent, but a lot of us, you know, don't have that choice. Um, like, we're, we're not just speaking for ourselves, we're speaking for the dead, and we're also speaking for our, our loved ones who are still undergoing, you know, colonial processes are impacting them today. Um, yeah, but like, despite the risks and how painful it can be at times, this is the work that's chosen me. Um, it brings me, joy to write essays, it brings me joy to write fiction. Um, I'm curious about what, what makes people tick and I'm curious about how we can disrupt cycles of trauma. And I'm grateful, you know, I'm grateful for, for everything that's happened to me. Um, I'd really like to end this uh, talk with a quote from truth teller, poet and librarian Audre Lorde. And she said, um, I was going to die sooner or later, whether or not I had spoken myself. My silences had not protected me. Your silences will not protect you. What, what are the words you do not have? What are the tyranni tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own? Until you will sicken and die from them, still in silence. We have been socialized to respect fear more than our own need for language. Ask yourself, what's the worst that will happen? Then push yourself a little further than you dare. Once you start to speak, people will yell at you. They will interrupt you, put you down and suggest it's personal and the world won't end. And the speaking will get easier and easier and you will lose some friends and lovers and realize you don't miss them. And new ones will find you and cherish you and you will flirt and paint your nails, dress up and party. And at last you'll know with surpassing certainty that only one thing is more frightening than speaking your truth and that is not speaking. Thank you. Okay, welcome back to Show and Tell. We're about to have our final speaker. Last but not least, is Dure Mugal, a writer on race and a performer. Hi. Uh, so I'm gonna start off by apologizing because I've been down with a viral flu for the past five days. 
um, and coming over here, I was sick like twice on the train <laughs> um, and I lost my notes. So I'm gonna kind of wing it. <laughs> um, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm a PhD <laughs> candidate, researcher candidate. There's like lots of terminology as you go up that get complicated and complicated um, at Cardiff University. Um, and my PhD is in creative and critical writing. Um, and it's a thesis on creative representations of South Asian identities in Welsh writing in English. And it's a mouthful. Um, so how I came to kind of get into like being a writer, wanting to do a PhD and all of that is like a long, long journey. <laughs> um, my parents migrated to the UK when I was about eight. Um, so I grew up in Wales and I don't know if anyone of you have been to Wales. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. <laughs> Were you, have you like went for a visit or a visit? Um, so I don't know if you'll notice, but there's a very, very severe lack of like black minority ethnic people in Wales. <laughs> um, and that's kind of reflected on in the curriculum, in the art scene, in the cultural scene. Um, and, you know, my parents were quite, well, we still are working class. Um, you know, as you know, if you seek asylum, like you, you're not really going to start off with like a great start to begin with. Um, so I didn't have the option growing up to kind of uproot and move to London, for example, if I wanted to be a writer. Um, but I was very, very lucky in the sense that all of my parents, all of my parents, two of my parents, <laughs> though people have multiple, <laughs> um, instilled in me this like work ethic that I have to go to university. If you're from a South Asian background, if you like going to university, at least getting a bachelor's degree is like the bare minimum. Yeah, everyone's nodding. So <laughs> um, and so that's where, where, you know, my journey started. And I was very lucky in the sense as well that my mum growing up, she really wanted me to pursue the, the not less so the arts, but English literature. Um, because also if you're from an Asian background, you'll realise that, you know, the STEM subjects are the more popular because they're more practical and, you know, you're more likely to get a job. Yeah, <laughs> get money. Someone's like... Um, and that's, yeah, but I was very, very lucky in the sense that my mum was like, no, it's okay, you know, you're going to study English literature, that's your passion. You, I loved reading. Um, and she, like, supported me. She backed me up in front of, like, really judgmental uncles who would be kind of, you know, at family dinners, they would say, what are you going to do with that when you grow up? Um, and now I can be like, well, this is what I'm doing with it, <laughs> which is, like, a really, really satisfying feeling. Um, so I studied English Lit um, as my undergrad English and creative writing as my undergrad, and then master's in creative writing, and then lucky enough to get a scholarship to do my PhD. Um, so how I kind of like went about trying to like make some sort of, I, would, I guess I can say a career, I'm still not confident. I feel like as, like when you come from a working class, like South Asian background, or perhaps not even from it, I think you'll realize that um, that lack of class confidence, that, you know, um, entitlement almost, that the world is yours to take. It, it really takes like a long time to build up. Um, and I feel like I'm still building it up and all my friends are kind of like, yeah, but you're doing such amazing things and you know, you're doing this and that and, and you know, you should be proud of yourself. And I'm like, I am, but I just, I still feel like an imposter syndrome in a lot of spaces. Um, and a lot of the work, doing the work, is learning to just live with that imposter syndrome and being like, I just need to do what I need to do. <laughs> um, and that's what it's lot, like been a lot. So um, 
a lot of my, as part of my, as well as my PhD, a lot of my side projects, side hustle, I like to call it, is um, I started to run an open mic in Cardiff because, you know, growing up, going to the literary scenes in Wales, there weren't really that many black minority ethnic or other faces in those scenes. The pressure was a lot on kind of um, someone who's published or someone who's well known and. I just didn't feel like there was a place for people like me coming from the background that I came from to do something. So um, I met other writers of color in Wales and we were kind of like, should we just should we just do this? Like, should we just start an open mic about, um, that is not about, but that is aimed at predominantly representing underrepresented writers? God, that's a mouthful. Um, so it's called Where I'm Coming From. Um, and I wish I'd brought my slides because then I could like I could like put them up and you could see it. <laughs> um, but we are on social media, so where I'm coming from, we started it to kind of, you know, it doesn't matter if you're published or not. It doesn't matter if you've never written a word in your life before. Um, it doesn't matter if you don't want to write again. It's just a safe space for you to come and share your work. And you know, we were quite lucky that um, one of the local arts scene, one of the local arts venues which was based in like a really diverse area of Cardiff, but they didn't have any programming that catered to that area. So we were able to kind of go in there. Yeah, someone's like, what? <laughs> Someone, so we were able to kind of go in and kind of be like, hey, you know, do you want to like give us a free room every month and we can help you out and you can help us out? And I think if, you know, you're thinking of trying to create something like that, it's a really good idea. I think you have to be really, bold and just be like, you know, you're lacking this and we want to do this and you want to do this and it's mutually beneficial. Um, so, and they've, and it's not just like a conniving business ag agreement over the time we've kind of built a really good relationship and we're kind of, um, you know, really helping each other in a way. Um, they're really supportive and stuff. How much time do I have? Two minutes, cool. Um, so that's one of the things we do. So I feel like, I guess I'm going to round it up in the sense that if you're, you know, working in the arts or the humanities, um, and you're kind of maybe thinking about careers, like is is anyone here trying to think of like future careers or what they're going to do to get that sort of a panic every now and then? <laughs> um, I think it's a good idea to kind of not. I don't want to say not panic, <laughs> but to kind of envision the type of, in a cliched way, the life and the career that you want and try to take really practical steps to go ahead and instill it. Um, and I mean, for me, creativity was a way to see myself in spaces that didn't show me. And I think like, if you have one goal, that's where you should kind of start from. Um, I don't want to like come here and be like, hey, you live in London, you can go and do this and go and do this because I'm unfamiliar with it. Um, but you know, in small places like, you know, Wales, where even to this day we get panels about like um, just all BME panels and how BME are you? Like that stuff still happens. <laughs> um, it's a hard culture to like push against, um, but push against you must. <laughs> uh, I think I'll end it there. I, I'm better at questions. So if you know, you have questions, we'll go from there. <laughs> Thank you, Dore, for the amazing talk as well. I think it's really important to think not about where you belong, but creating a space for yourself to belong. And 
your speech really resonated with me because it made me think about that. And I think all the talks were quite amazing. And I hope you guys found all the talks amazing, which is why I hope you've been thinking about questions for our Q&A. You just said you're better at questions and answering those. So we're going to hand it over to our wonderful audience. Person in the back, have you got a question? I'm going to pass the mic to you. So one thing that's been on the um, tip, tip of my mind, so to speak, from the get-go is this idea of imposter syndrome. So for full context, I'm only a part-time student here, and I'm also working outside, outside of university. And as a black person in the tech industry, which is, for those in the know, not very black, um, I do that. I have that regular feeling of, am I even supposed to be here? Have I entered some kind of cheat code? Is it like up, down, up, down, left, right, A, B? What's going on? So, <clears throat> I would basically my question is, what practical piece of advice do you have? What kind of sort of mantras or mottos could you give to combat that sort of, that feeling of imposter syndrome? Hi. Um, yeah. So I completely understand what you're talking about and because I've had um, well felt it and I didn't even know that I was feeling imposter syndrome till I saw it on Big Bang Theory and they were talking about it um, but I think what you've got to tell yourself is remind yourself of the work that you've put in to be where you are so you are you've got to just reflect on yourself and once you start reflecting on yourself you see your worth and you see that actually you do belong where you are so that's the advice I can give you my advice would be a bit different because I think that for, for me it's recognizing that people actively want to undermine you and, and, and you just and you have to just kind of recognize that, that, that and even they may not even be completely aware of it but they are actively trying and so the second I realized that it's just kind of like a game and, 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 and you just got to play the game and just tell yourself that you're worthy and surround yourself with people who t who remind you of that and you're worthy outside of your work right like your your work is just the thing you do but you're you and the second that you fully and start to sort of process that and like accept that that is the true like that will open the door so to speak that's why i say I think that's that's a really good point because the point about like being that you're worthy outside of your work because for so long I used to tie my worth to my work um, and I would go through like a really bad breakup or something I would be like it's okay I've still got my work like and that's actually really toxic like going forward and yeah I you know and that you're worthy um, and like I'm not talking about myself and I think like a lot of people here could resonate with but I always also think like as well as the advice these two have given there, which is really valid. Like, um, I also always add to that, and I think like my ancestors, like my grandparents who migrated through the partition and survived that, and then my own parents like traveled across the continent to get me here, to not get me here, to like for me to not almost fail because failure is okay, but you know, it's like they got me here for a reason. I deserve to be here. I have all of that history of people pushing through and surviving like, bad outcomes and bad odds and so you know I can do this like you've got this <laughs> do we have a next question uh, <clears throat> thank you all of your you three wonderful lectures 
and I have uh, two questions. That's uh, for uh, Mia. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, because you are talk about uh, your study is chemical, and uh, you are focused on the fitness and health. So, what's your response to? Now, what's happening in China? <laughs> I think you have know the news about this, so um, I desire to listen to your response about this. And also, another two questions about to uh, to you both. And uh, Case Kizun, yes, and you are also a writer, write fiction, yes. Uh, can you tell me your inspiration, where it come from, and also? Your state, I mean, your daily life, it's, uh, I mean, the state of writing, yeah. And uh, another one is for doer. And uh, you, you talk about you are uh, do the creative writing and also the PhD. So do you think is there some conflicts between the both? I mean, the role as a writer, creative writing, and another one is a kind of scholar. So how, if you, uh, feel there's some conflicts. How do you adjust it? Thank you. Okay, I think I'll go to Zahim first. It was a question about what's going on in China for context, coronavirus, right? Yeah, this is a particular context we're talking about. So yeah, I, I, I do, I'm aware of what's going on in China. Um, and obviously it's devastating to hear um, that there's this virus going around and it's actually spread to other countries as well. Having said that, um, I do think that again, it can be prevented as well for per like personally, you can prevent it through um, hygiene and cleaning and just sort of, you know, covering your mouth when you cough or keep washing your hands and stuff. So as much as it is quite scary, it can be prevented as well. Obviously, there's not too much about, there's not too much research about it. So I'm interested, I'm keeping trying to keep up to date with it. Um, but what I'm more concerned about is actually the um, racism that Chinese people are getting towards um, coronavirus. And I've got, um, my flatmate is Chinese, I'm really close with her. And we talk about this nearly every night since it's come out. And um, it's actually, it's, that, uh, that I think is actually worse than the coronavirus itself. And I think we need to spread more awareness about that because actually you can end up getting um, pneumonia or you know the, the common cold or flu um, much quicker than you can actually get coronavirus. So I think the racism side that's actually come, come with coronavirus is actually a lot worse. And I think that is something that we need to raise awareness about. Um, I find this question of inspiration extremely difficult because like my brain is like everything is interconnected, everything is interconnected. So it's like everything is kind of inspiring in a way. But I mean, I find people really, really interesting. I find people difficult and I find people interesting. Um, and so I think in some ways, I think, uh, you know, like motivations and stuff like that. Like I find I, I can sit in front of someone and just like listen to them talk all day and just work out like why are they the way that they are. I'm very into that. And like nature, basically nature. Um, and the state I'm in, do, do you mean like what stage I'm in? Oh, my pro like process. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I'm very much. I think I need to write minimum three to four hours a day, and very and in two blocks, morning and then maybe at night. 
and in the middle it has to be some kind of walk or physical activity because it's important to look after your back um, and but for real like no, no one ever talks about that <laughs> yeah right um, so yeah and that's basically yeah and, and, and I think discipline is super important and like it's something you have to work to like I think it's like you have to actually accept like this this like to take yourself very seriously like take your work seriously and I don't think many people sort of do you know they say that they want to write but then they don't do it and you have to sort of take yourself seriously yeah I feel really attacked that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no it's fine I really admire discipline <laughs> um the question was on how I deal with um being a scholar and also a creative writer and how I marry them both honestly it's I'm in my second year now and it's hard <laughs> um when I started like other people even in the literature department, they were kind of like, oh, I always thought people just wanted to be a writer, like do a writing, create writing PhD because they didn't want to get a job. And I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> um, I think the way I approach it is I see creative writing as a practice-led research, that's what we call it. So um, whereas with other researchers, um, you may do field work or you may do interviews and study, um, the act of writing is in itself a way of researching because, um, you're kind of looking for something and you're trying to say something or bring to life something that hasn't actually existed before and that's kind of the essence of doing a phd is um uncovering new knowledge um so great like and that is exactly what creative writing is if you think about it um but it is hard it, like some days i'm kind of because i do so many other side projects as well i'm kind of like oh, am i even taking this seriously am i being a serious enough academic am i even committed to this but i think there's also um learning to undo that idea of what traditional academia looks like um because i think that's really needed as we go forward like with all the social and cultural and political issues that we have going on right now i think that's how i like every time i start to think about that i i'm like no you're, you're you know you're adding something new cut that out and just get to work because yeah, I feel like things have to adapt and change, and I think creative writing is a way of bringing that to it, so, yeah. Great, we have time for a couple more questions. See some hands up, I'll go to you first, and then I'll come to you. Hi, uh, you guys have talked all in your own ways about a bit of imposter syndrome and trying to figure out your own space in what is generally a white dominated space. And as three women and three women of color, um, I'm just wondering how you guys feel about um, one, making that decision for yourself that this was the correct and the right way for you to make your mark in your own way and how much courage that took and what was the deciding factor in terms of no I'm not going to question myself and continue questioning if this is right for me this is intrinsically like feels right for now and is what I'm going to do sorry if that's very very vague but okay and I will take the second question as well by the way we have just under 10 minutes my question is kind of related actually to her um, the reason why I came to this event is one of the many reasons that uh, it was inspired by TED Talks. And uh, a topic of TED Talks that is very, very big is uh, find your passion and your talent. And I can imagine that you kind of find something that is your talent or something that you love to do or at least that motivates you. 
um, do you think um, this is a good way to sort of uh, find the career path by looking into something that you was good at doing when you was little or you know something that you've been doing consistently or maybe it just you know it's not it's not a real thing <laughs> yeah Okay, I'll start on the other side with Dure. Switch things up a bit. You refresh my memory of the first question. Finding courage. Of finding courage and finding your talent. I mean, like, um, how did you come to decide that this is what, what I wanted? Okay. Okay. They actually, yeah, they are quite interlinked. Um, I I would say going from like second to first I would like I loved reading that was you know that was what I wanted to do I, I just loved reading um, but there were other things I contemplated but they were always arts based so you know I wanted to be like a painter um, I wanted to be maybe be a graphic designer which is again quite arts based like quite creative um, but I think in the end like I just looked at what I was getting good marks at <laughs> at uni um, but in terms of like wanting to be a writer, I don't know. Um, I think it was just something that was in me that was like, I just have to get something on the page. Um, and I always think of like, how do you want to leave your mark in the world? And for me, it was like, even if 10 people read where I write, I still want to leave behind something um, that will be there after I'm gone. That's really morbid, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but the finding the courage to do it, I think as well as like, finding inner courage i think support networks are really really important i think if you don't have a support network of creatives or friends who really uplift you who you can actually really talk about these things with constantly um because i know we all have like a variety of friends you know we'll have one friend for this one friend for this like it's important to have friends um creative friends that you can just echo off of and every single time you begin to doubt yourself and you begin to think oh maybe this isn't right for me they will tell you it's right for you um, so sometimes I think, yeah, that helps too. It's helpful. <laughs> that really resonates with me. Um, I'll go for the first question first. I, this is such a hard question for me because it's like, I don't think of this as like a, cho like a chosen thing, like you choose to, you know, I feel that sometimes, like, I think everything is like a kind of combination of things being thrown at you and then you choosing things, if that makes sense. And I think only a certain kind of person gets to choose exactly what they want to do and it definitely comes with privilege and stuff like that. Um, I feel like in so many ways this country totally broke me down and like that's just being so real like I feel like it broke me down and then but in some strange way it was like brilliant because it's like sometimes you realize like I don't know, it just made me realize that oh right I only have myself and, and and I need to just kind of work with that and it was kind of transformative to realize that I just didn't care anymore about what anyone said <laughs> and I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do and I don't I just did not care anymore like I didn't care what um I didn't care what people said anymore um like you know talking about your family and stuff like that like I didn't have like family to support me in my journey so to me it's it was very much about recognizing that i am a powerful person like i'm powerful and you know, institutions yeah they're powerful but you, you know you, you you know you have the capacity to change instantly and institutions don't have that capacity and that's you know when you start to really think really think about that that's like like mind-blowing it's like cool 
And that's what I would say. And I do not remember what the second question was. Right. Oh God, that's hard. Um, I think I think it's I think what you said about community is incredibly important. Finding like-minded people, and also just recognizing, uh, like being very honest with yourself, so that you can be honest with other people about what you're actually passionate about. Like doing a lot of sort of self-work and like figuring out what it is exactly that you're interested in, and not just kind of doing things because they're on trend or you know. And then really thinking, like yeah, and thinking deeply, thinking deeply about. And I think taking small steps as well, and like open mic nights are really great if you're a performer, and also just like being willing to learn, you know, willing to learn from people who practice rather than people who are solely academics. I think that's really important as well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the first question was about courage, right? Um, where I found the courage. So it might seem like a very cliched um, answer, but it was literally my parents really pushed me. Um, I was quite good at maths when I was really young, and um, I really enjoyed um, biology, chemistry, especially like lab work. I was just too into it. And then um, when I did A-levels, I did biology, chemistry, maths. Um, and then I, I realised, even though I enjoy maths, I do not want to take this at uni. And then I just combined with biology and chemistry to biochemistry. Um, and... I was quite lucky in the sense that, because when I was ill, um, I took off like a couple of months off school. Um, so I did fall back behind, but my parents were the ones who really pushed me. My brother's there as well, so he can vouch for that too. Um, so yeah, they really pushed me. My parents and my family are really good, have been, um, I'm fortunate enough to have a really good support network and as well as um, friends and stuff. So that was my courage. Um, but then I never thought about when I go to uni, um, that I'd actually become a fitness instructor. And that sort of ties in with your question as well about passion. And um, even though I was like going to the gym after I was um, diagnosed and once I was diagnosed, I wasn't walking, but then afterwards I did start walking again. I thought, let me be active to manage my health a lot better. Um, and then slowly it just became a passion for me. And I thought, actually, I can tie these two together, um, both my courage um, and like my academia, as well as my passion um, in fitness. And I can just mold the two together and that is why I am now. Okie dokie and those are the last two questions. So I just want to say thank you to our wonderful speakers for giving up their time to share their wonderful work with us. To our amazing student ambassadors for helping out today, helping to lead the whole thing behind the scenes. To the SED admin team for just doing their thing upstairs, just doing their paperwork. And thank you to everyone here and everyone who's going to be listening to this podcast for coming, listening and supporting curations by people of colour because we love to see it. Thanks for coming to Show and Tell. Thank you for coming, guys, and thank you, Sarah Marie, for being an amazing host. Um, so that we're just going to wrap up right now. Um, you can uh, stay in the foyer and then have conversations if you want to. There's still snacks out there which no one took. Please take it. Um, it's free. We're not going to charge you. Um, and yeah. So um, yeah. Good night, everyone. <laughs>